on page 900 of the Blue Bibles. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. When we were overwhelmed with by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power. Having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Those living far away fear your wonders, where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are closed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. This is the word of the Lord. As we enter this psalm, I, I want to put in front of us one of our, our confessions as well. It's Article 2 out of the Belgic Confession. And it says this, We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. God's eternal power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20, all these things are enough to convict humans and to leave them without excuse. Second, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. It's quite interesting to me when you look at Scripture how many of the Psalms, how many of Jesus' parables actually bring these two things together. Psalm 19 starts off with this incredible meditation on, on the rising of the sun and the travels of the sun through the day and then turns to saying, it's just like your law, Lord, and how your law shines in our lives. Uh, psalm 23, David has this beautiful psalm that most of us are familiar with that, that enters into the idea of a shepherd walking with his sheep and caring for his sheep. And it, it brings us alongside green pastures and still waters and even into the valleys. It's amazing when you think of it. Creation itself is crying out, is in some sense declaring the glories of God. And this psalm helps us to enter into that space today. As we took, take a look at Psalm 65, we're going to look at it in three ways. The first is God answers our prayers. It's the first four verses. The second section is God above all else. And we'll look at that in verses 5 through 8. And then we'll come back at the end to God cares for the land, 
verses 9 to 13. God answers our prayer. There's a little bit in this text, in the NIV, the NRSV, and a few other English texts that they skip over a Hebrew word in the translation that they're not quite sure what to do with. And that Hebrew word means silence. The opening of this psalm is actually silence. Eugene Peterson, who who wrote the message paraphrase of Scripture, uh, picked up on that, and, and he phrases it this way. Silence is praise to you, Zion dwelling God, and also obedience. You hear the prayer in it all. Quite a few of the commentators who are looking at this opening section, they say it's, it's meant to be as if we have just entered the, the temple and, and we're sitting there in the temple. One of the references they say is, think of Hannah, Samuel's mom. Hannah, Hannah went to the temple each year and, and most times would be there silently along with everyone else as they sat in God's presence. But But this one year she went in and she started weeping and sobbing to the point that that the priest Eli thought she was drunk. It was so unusual to have someone making noise in the holy place. And here she is pouring her heart out and lamenting. And they said it's that contrast that we feel. It's, It's we're entering into this psalm as silent. A people who are who are beside themselves and don't know quite what to say or what to do in the presence of God. And so they enter in silence. And the psalmist is saying, the silence, the silence of this place is praise. It's a people coming before God who are trusting him, who are turning to him in desperation. And they're saying, God, hear the groaning of my heart. Hear the the doubts that are inside me. Hear the fears that have gripped me. Hear the things that I I don't dare give voice to. God, hear my prayers. The psalmist isn't the only one to pick up on that silence theme. You think of of Psalm 46, that great psalm where where the whole world seems to be in in this tumultuous state. The the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea. The nations are up uproar and there's wars all over the place. And then you get to verse 10 and God says, Be still. Know that I am God. It's actually quite a challenge in our culture. Because we live in a culture that's constantly feeding us more and more information about what's wrong in the world. What's wrong in U.S. politics? What's wrong in the Middle East? What's wrong with our economy? What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And it gets so heavy and we're inundated with it constantly. We don't know how to respond. And in the midst of that, this psalm invites us in just as Psalm 46 does. Be still. Be silent. Take that space to stop. Dare, if you will. Open your hands before God. Let him lift those burdens off of you. Let him lift those worries and concerns about the world around us and things that are far beyond our control. 
Let him lift the pain that is in your heart and in your marriages and in your home. Let him hold you. Romans 8, 26, which has, uh, that Romans 8 chapter is just a loaded, loaded chapter, but it has this little piece in it where it talks about how the Spirit, in fact, even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with wordless groans. We're entering into a holy space where, where our prayers are not so much what we have to say to God, but our praying our entering before God is an act of, of humility where we say, God, all of this is beyond us. We need you. And we say it not so much with our words, but our action, our willingness to be silent in God's presence. The beginning of this psalm is one of silence, an act of silence, of waiting listening, trusting God. It's actually three different longings that come up in this text. It says, you forgive our sins. Part of being in that silence is saying, God, I've got guilt and shame on me, and you know it. I would dare not come before you if it wasn't by your invitation of grace in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I couldn't even be here before you. I would be too worried that you would consume me, that I would somehow be undone before you. But you forgive our sins. God's grace in the silence is to remind us that our sins are forgiven to address that deep longing we have for wholeness and reconciliation with God and with others. And it's in that space of silence that we begin to experience that goodness of God. There's also a, a, a couple refrains in here about how God chooses us and draws us close. Blessed are those whom you choose. And, and God brings us back into his presence. Listen to a, a professor at Calvin Seminary a week ago uh, Ari Later, who was just retiring, and he made the argument that, that the whole Old Testament, in fact, all of Scripture, is a, a wrestling of what happens at the end of Genesis chapter 3. We have been kicked out of God's presence. And the rest of the story is our longing to get back in God's presence and God coming after us to bring us back into his presence. Our, our core longing in life is that we have this God-shaped hole, as some have said, inside of us that can only be filled by God and God's presence alone. And we long and we crave, and sometimes we stuff that hole with all sorts of things that are not good. And yet this text tells us in the midst of our silence before God and reminds us that God is bringing us back into his presence. He's meeting that deep longing of ours to be reunited with God. And he does so in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, which we will celebrate. And he assures us through the Spirit that in fact we do belong to him. No matter all the chaos in the world around us, we still belong to God. And then the ending of this sufficiently saffonsified. Have you ever heard that phrase before? I heard it on one of my first trips to Canada. 
going home with Henny, meeting the family. Her dad finished the meal and goes, ah, I'm sufficiently suffocified. I said, that's not a word. Apparently it is now, and it originated here in Canada. Okay, a little pride, yeah. Sufficiently suffocified. It means I am satisfied. I have no more needs. The idea with it is, is perhaps best seen as a Thanksgiving Day full. Okay? You have eaten all that you wanted to eat, all that you could eat, and you sit down with family and friends. Sometimes the Dutch, I'll probably mispronounce it, chazelik, that sense of all is right and good. This is where we belong. And the end of this this verses 1 through 4 talks about how in the silence we begin to remember that God is the one who provides his gifts to us. He is the one who lavishes his love on us. He is the one who causes us to flourish. We become sufficiently suffocified. Psalm 23 verse 1 echoes out this way. Lord, my shepherd, I want nothing. The Hebrew literally says, no wants. doesn't even say a nice sentence. It just is kind of this guttural response. Lord, shepherd, no wants. I have nothing I want because you have satisfied me. Or that song we sometimes sing of, he lives, he lives. It has in it, all fears are gone. That sense that that everything we might be afraid of, will I have enough money to care for myself? Will I be able to set aside enough to provide for my children? Will, Will we have enough food? Will we be protected from our enemies? And the response in this passage is, all those fears are gone because God himself is our provider. It's amazing how full silence can be. But that's where this psalm begins. And so we have an invitation here, an invitation to pray silently, not a passive waiting, but an active listening, listening for God to meet our deepest needs. Will you forgive my sins, Lord? Will, Will you come alongside me and be present with me? Will you, Lord, meet all the needs I have and all those fears I have, will you take them away? It leaves us with a question. Will we open ourselves to receive this grace from God? Are we willing to go from those, those clenched fists which are trying to control life and hold on to all the details possible to those open hands where we can receive from God's grace? The second part, and this is really an important part, it's as if, as if God is anticipating and the psalmist is anticipating a response here. God, this sounds all fine and good, but you know there are people who are big and strong and powers and forces in the world around us who threaten to undo us. We feel the pressure and the stress, and it seems too much for us to handle. And this second section really says God is above all else. It says God answers with awesome and righteous deeds. In fact, God is our Savior. One of the few times in the Old Testament actually uses that language. God is our Savior. He is the one who enters into those places where we feel lost and hopeless, and he saves us. That is God's character, one who saves. 
So in the midst of the circumstances, those things that threaten us, God is saying, this is who I am. I enter into the brokenness. I am the one who enters into these places and rescues my people. I save my people. And on top of that, not just my people, but in fact, my deeds, my awesome and mighty deeds, my righteous deeds, are ones that are intended for the hope of the whole earth to the farthest seas. It's quite a statement in that day and age. You see, the ancient Near East, the the community, the people of Israel were part of, they had a world set up so that there was gods of the mountains and gods of the plains and gods of the seas and gods of the cities and, and gods of the forest and the valleys. There were gods everywhere. And as you traveled and entered into a new physical terrain, you were supposed to make some sort of offering up to the god of that area who would grant you safe passage. And when there was an enemy who was coming toward you, who was from the mountains. You needed to find a, pe- a way to appease that God so that the threat of this enemy would not overwhelm you. Or if the God was coming from the plains, you need- needed to make peace with the God of the plains. Their world was segmented. Creation was seen as symbolizing the power of the gods around them. It's quite interesting to hear in this psalm It's not just the God of the plains or the mountains or the cities or the hills or the seas. He's God over everything. In fact, the names that come up to name the mountain, there was a God who was named that sound just like the Hebrew word for mountain. There was another one called Yam, and Yam is also the word, Hebrew word for the sea. The gods, the deities that are named here are also physical parts of creation more than all the other would-be gods. Notice how these verses unfold. He's got more power than the mountains because he formed them. The mountains have no threat against God because God's the one who made them. The seas, the chaos of the seas, the roaring of the waves, even the turmoil of the nations are not a threat to you because God simply needs to say, be still. He stilled the roaring of the seas and the turmoil of the nations. Puts a new light on Jesus when he's in that boat with the disciples, doesn't it? And he's sound asleep, and there's chaos all over, and these fishermen, people who grew up on the sea, are fearful for their very lives because of how tumultuous the sea is, and it's threatening to overwhelm them, and they go up to Jesus, how can you sleep? Don't you care if we live? stretches. That's not in the text, but kind of wakes up. All right. Be still. And the waves go quiet. And everyone in the boat is struck with this fearful awe. Who is this that even the waves listen to him? Jesus, God, has authority over the waves and the chaos in the world around us and in the nations around us. God is still the one who can at any moment say, be still, and it will stop. More than the awe of dawn and dusk. Dawn and dusk were actually considered twin gods, and they were ones who inspired 
They were the ones who gave inspiration because of the beauty of the dawn and the beauty of dusk. And here it says he has more awe. Your awe is seen at the dawn and the dusk of each day. You see how through this whole thing and by pointing to things in creation, the psalmist is saying, look, even that part of creation is submitted to God. And if that belongs to God, what reason do we have to fear? God is creator over all of it. So look at the mountains and be in awe of how powerful God is because he made them. Look at the tumultuous seas and be in awe that God is still in authority over them. They are still under his control. Be in awe at the beauty you see at the start of the day and the beauty you see when the sun sets. Be in awe because all of this All of this is God's. None of it is beyond his control. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. You know, oftentimes we talk about what Jesus did for us just in a personal way. He saved me from my sins and restored me so that I've got a promised reconciliation with God and I'll live with him forever. But listen to how Colossians 1 describes what Christ did. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What we celebrate, what we will taste in a few moments is God saying to us, I have control over you. You are in my hand. Take comfort. Your sins cannot separate you from me. Death cannot separate from you from me. I have you. And in fact, not just you, but I hold the whole world in my hands. All of creation is in my hands. I have redeemed it all in Jesus Christ. I am reconciling it all to myself in Christ. And so we taste a little piece of creation in the bread and in the juice. But what we're really tasting is God's lordship over all things. God's renewing renewing promise to make everything new. Not just you and me. An invitation then to recognize God as the creator of life and the ruler over every other power and circumstance that threatens to undo us. And along with that invitation comes this question. So what are the specific ways that, that you and I, that we need to experience God as our Savior today? We may have a broken relationship that we're coming with that seems like it can never be healed. We may be here this morning with so much pain in our heart from things that have been done to us that we think we are beyond God's reach. 
And this word says to us, you are mine. No matter what has been done to you, no matter what you have done, I love you and I can care for you. Will you let me be your savior? It's interesting. The way God responds here. The movement of the Spirit in this psalm is is to say to us essentially, now look at creation. If you're wondering if I can be trusted, if you're wondering if I will be faithful to you, if you're wondering if I can really care for you, take time to look at creation. God abundantly riches enriches the land. It says the streams of God or the river of God, depending on the translation you read. But the river of God was a specific uh, part of their cosmology. It was seen as being up in heaven, physically up above the earth, and, and pouring out God's blessings upon the earth. That's how they came to understand rain at that time. That rain was, was God reaching his hand out and pouring down upon the earth his blessings. And in an agricultural society, that rain was something they were totally dependent upon. And here it's saying, God cares for the earth. Look, he even opens up the river of God so that it will pour upon the earth to care for it. Why? So that God can bless the people. More than that, God's abundant generosity is shown in three ways here. It talks about the furrows of the land, the the way the land has been cultivated, the work of the farmers, essentially. And then he says, pay attention not only to what, what the farmers are doing and how the ground responds to them, pay attention to the hills and the wilderness. The hills and the wilderness didn't figure into a lot of places. They were dead spaces. And God's essentially saying to the people, You want to see if I can care for you? Go look at how I'm recklessly generous with the wilderness. I cause life to flourish in the most arid of places. Those places you don't expect any life to be, go look. There's life there. Ever come upon a desert flower or seen those pictures of a cactus blooming? That's the type of image the Psalms meant to invoke in us. It's meant us, for us to see there's no life here and then go, oh, but there is. There's life growing in unexpected places. And it adds on to this. And on top of it, if you are, have enough patience, wait until the harvest time. Not just the springtime when the flowers bloom. Wait till the end of the year when you see the flocks covering the hills and you see the grain coming in in abundance. And know then that I care for the land, and just as I care for the land, I will care for you. Did you catch the last phrase? And they will shout for joy and sing. Where did the psalm start? Silence. A silence before God because the world is too heavy for us to carry. Where does it end? an awe and wonder before God that evokes in us a a spontaneous type of joy, a, a singing of songs because we see in creation that God is still the one who cares for us. 
God is still at work making things new. God is still at work cultivating life. And in so doing, he is cultivating within us not fear, but awe. Awe and wonder. So an invitation. Stand in awe of God's abundant, generous care for all of creation. Recognizing that God cares for us even more. Even more than those birds in the bushes. And it leads us to this question. Are we willing to see and joyfully trust God that he will extend his abundant generosity toward us even as God does throughout all of creation? I invite you, whether today or tomorrow or later this week, simply to take a chair and go sit in your backyard not even going to ask you to go on a hike, even though I think that's a great idea. I'm not going to ask you to go find some stream and, and kind of sit there by the quiet waters, though if you have time, please do so. Take the simple step, taking a chair, putting it in your backyard, and simply sitting there. Look at a tree. Look at a blade of grass. Look at a little ladybug crawling around. Find some part of creation that you can look at and take in. And in so doing, sit there in silence and begin to listen to God saying to you, I care for you even more than I care for these. Let's pray. Thank you for your gift of creation, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to work the ground to cause things to grow and, and to be part of what you are doing of making all things new. We pray today that in a, a world that seems so chaotic with so many things that, that we are inundated with that are going wrong, whether in the big world around us or in the world of our own homes and our own hearts, we pray, Lord, that you would hold us, that you would free us from our fears, that you would set our feet on solid ground where we can see and smell and watch you care for life. Help us to believe that you care for us as well. We pray this in Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Invite us to stand and sing in response, This is my Father's world.